Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, Episode 146. Last week, we talked about a report linking the Vatican and the USCCB to some very evil things. People ask me how I can continue to support the Catholic Church when I know all about these evils. That's a good question. I'm going to explain the why in this episode and my reasons why are important for all of you to hear. There are a number of non-Catholics who listen to this show, and it's especially important that they hear what I have to say. The Mafia has an interesting and logical hierarchy. At the top of the food chain is the boss of the bosses. Then there's the territorial bosses. Next are the capos. Finally, you have the soldiers. The Sicilian Mafia is all but gone in America, but we have another kind of Mafia-like criminal organization. It's called the Lavender Mafia, and it has overwhelmingly infiltrated the USCCB. Because Chicago is the primatial sea in America, Cardinal Blaise Supich is the boss of the bosses. The territorial bosses are his fellow bishops who belong to the Lavender Mafia. Their capos are the diocesan chancellors and vicars. The foot soldiers are all those priests who agree with the criminal bishops or they're too cowardly to courageously oppose the heresies and sins of the Lavender Mafia bishops. The Sicilian Mafia made all its ill-gotten wealth through strong-arming, lying, cheating, and stealing. The Lavender Mafia is no different, except they wear ecclesiastical robes that give them the appearance of legitimacy. Make no mistake, the Lavender Mafia is every bit as evil as the Sicilian Mafia. 
Through the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, they promote abortion, socialism, defunding the police, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, contraception, and illegal immigration. Worst of all, they do it with your money. They lie to you in never-ending appeals and strong-arm the money through parish taxes of the money you give the parish. They depend on your money. Well, you can fight back. Until our bishops begin doing as they ought, we shouldn't give them a dime. So I invite you to download Catholic Bogus Bucks. Catholic Bogus Bucks are intended to send a clear message to these criminal mafia-like bishops. They're great for wayward parish priests as well. Best of all, they're free to anyone who wants them. Try them out. This Sunday at collection time, assuming you're not happy with your parish priest, you know, the criminals who just haven't been promoted to bishop yet, drop a Catholic bogus buck in the collection basket rather than your hard-earned money. Message received. And the next time your bishop sends an envelope, he's demanding that you fill with your hard-earned money to finance his criminal activity, fill it with Catholic bogus bucks instead. Catholic Bogus Bucks are easy to use. All you have to do is download the bucks and print all of them you want. They're free. Let me say that again. They're free. To get your Bogus Bucks, go to cantankerouscatholic.com slash evil dash bishops. Let me be frank. The hierarchy of the Catholic Church is overwhelmingly evil. The current Pope is not only a heretic, but he's in grave sin. If you have doubts about that, just ask me about it and I'll explain it. There's corruption and evil spread throughout the Vatican and almost the entire Catholic world. The USCCB has become a criminal empire that steals your money to promote evil ideologies, their criminal activities, and their lavish lifestyles. The Lavender Mafia is well entrenched in the vast majority of American dioceses and throughout the priesthood. In short, the Catholic hierarchy is headed to hell in a handbasket, literally. So it's a reasonable question to ask when people say to me, Joe, knowing what you know about conditions in the Catholic Church, how in the world can you continue to support and promote it? Good question. Let me see if I can answer it. Christianity is 2,000 years old. There are approximately 40,000 religions claiming to be Christian today, yet the oldest among the non-Catholic sects is only 504 years old. With all those Christian religions that are only 500 years old, can any reasonable person believe that we had to wait 1,500 years for the fullness of Christ's truth? Jesus didn't establish 40,000 churches but only one church, and that church is the Catholic Church. Jesus established the Catholic Church on St. Peter. He set Peter as its rock and foundation in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, and to him alone did Jesus give, in a special way, the powers of binding and loosing everything on earth in that same passage of strengthening his brethren in Luke 22:31 and feeding the whole flock in John 21, 15 through 17. Objections to this are raised by people who say, yeah, but this doesn't show the church established by Jesus is the Catholic Church, nor that Peter was the first pope, 
much less that Jesus established a papacy. After all, there's no place anywhere in the Bible that mentions anything about the Catholic Church nor the papacy. To those making that objection, I'd say that they're absolutely correct, but the Bible also nowhere mentions the Trinity or the Bible itself, yet those same detractors believe in them. So let's first answer the objection about the reality of the Catholic Church, that it's not a man-made religion, but rather a divinely created one. Something seemingly very few people are aware of is a collection of writings of the early Christians from the first several centuries. They're called patristics. If you want to know what those early Christians believe, read patristics. Be ready to do a lot of reading, though, because there are so many of them that the entire collection is in a 38 encyclopedia-sized volumes. When you read what these early Christians believed, you'll see that every single thing they believed is what the constant 2,000-year teachings of the Catholic Church have been. But did they call themselves Catholic? Although the name Catholic isn't applied to the Church in the Bible, Christ and the Apostles had the concept of Catholic in mind, because Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means universal. The Catholic Church is certainly universal that is, for all people of all times and in all places. St. Ignatius of Antioch in A.D. 107 writes in his letter to the Smyrnans, Where the bishop is, there let the multitude of believers be. Even as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Notice that St. Ignatius didn't write of the Catholic Church as if he were giving it a new name, but rather as though the name had long been in use and his readers would recognize it. It's reasonably safe to assume, then, that the Church was probably called Catholic during the latter part of the first century. Indeed, it's likely that St. John the Apostle, who was the mentor to St. Polycarp, who was the mentor of St. Ignatius, had heard the church called by that name and had done so himself since he died around the year A.D. 100. This was the earliest written record of the church being referred to by the name Catholic, but there are hundreds of like references in the writings of early Christians after that. But what about the establishment of the papacy? After all, there's no mention of a papacy in the Bible. The biblical evidence is overwhelming. St. Peter was almost always named first in the Gospels listing of the apostles in Matthew 10, 1 through 4, Mark 3, 16 through 19, Luke 6, 14 through 16, and Acts 1, 13. And sometimes the apostles were referred to only as, quote, Peter and those who were with him, end quote, as in Luke 9.32. Peter was the first of the apostles to preach, the first to perform a healing miracle, and the one to whom the revelation came that Christianity was for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Peter's preeminent position among the apostles was symbolized at the very beginning of his relationship with Christ, although the implications were only slowly unfolded. At their first meeting in John 1.42, Christ told Simon that his name would thereafter be Peter, which translates as rock. The startling thing was that in the Old Testament, only God was called a rock. The word was never used as a proper name for a man. 
If you were to turn to a companion and say, from now on your name is asparagus, people would wonder, why asparagus? What is the meaning of it? Indeed, why Peter for Simon the fisherman? Why give him as a name a word only used for God before this moment? Christ wasn't given to meaningless gestures, and neither were the Jews as a whole when it came to names. Giving a new name meant that the status of the person was changed, as when Abram was changed to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Eliakim to Joachim, and Daniel, Ananias, Mishael, and Azarias to Balthazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But no Jew had ever been called Rock because that was reserved for God. The Jews would give other names taken from nature, such as Barak, which means lightning, Deborah, which means bee of the stinging variety, and Rachel, which means you, you know, a female sheep, but not Rock. In the New Testament, James and John were surnamed Boanerges, or Sons of Thunder by Christ in Mark 3.17, but that was never regularly used in place of their original names. Simon's new name supplanted the old. St. Peter's name has been firmly established by Christ as a name synonymous with God. Throughout Jesus and Peter's relationship, the reason became gradually clear, but it becomes crystal clear in Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. Immediately after Peter proclaims Christ's divinity, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. There's an exclamation point there, too. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This passage seems obvious to most readers. The verse could be rewritten as, You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. It makes perfect sense that Jesus is here giving St. Peter supreme authority. However, those who desire to debunk the papacy prefer to claim that the rock refers to Christ instead of Peter. According to the rules of grammar, the phrase this rock must relate to the closest noun. Peter's profession of faith, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is two verses earlier, while his name, a proper noun, is in the immediately preceding clause. As an analogy, consider this artificial sentence. I have a pair of pants and a shirt, and it is blue. What is blue? The shirt, because that's the noun closest to the pronoun it. The identification would be even clearer if the reference to the pair of pants were two sentences earlier, as the reference to Peter's profession is two sentences earlier than the term rock. Not only is the reference to rock clear, But we also see that Jesus is giving Peter more authority than God has ever given any man, along with some specific promises. Immediately after stating he will build the church on Peter, the rock, Jesus goes on to make a promise and explain why he'll do this. The promise is that the gates of hell won't defeat the church built on Peter. The promise isn't that the gates of hell won't try to beat the church, only that hell won't win. 
This is a promise that the church won't be destroyed by Christ's enemies and that she'll stand until the end of time. Consider this. Numerous Roman emperors, Attila the Hun, Napoleon, Hitler, and many other mighty enemies of the church have tried to destroy her, yet she continues to live while they are just dust and ashes. Next, we find Jesus using the symbol of the keys. This symbol has always implied power and authority, and the giving of the keys is a transfer of that power and authority. This isn't lost on us today. The owner of a business possesses both the keys to the business and the authority to run it. When he passes those keys to a new manager, he also passes over the power and authority. Finally, there's what we call the power of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing among the rabbis of Jesus' time meant to declare something prohibited or permitted. Here it plainly means that St. Peter, the steward of the Lord's house, the church, has all the rights and powers of a divinely appointed steward. He doesn't, like the Jewish rabbis, declare probable speculative opinions, but has the right to teach and govern authoritatively with the certainty of God's approval in heaven. A law-giving power is certainly implied by these words. Jesus also established how he'd forgive sin. Contrary to what has become common belief today, if people feel any need at all for asking God to forgive their sins, they think all they have to do is simply pray for his forgiveness. But that simply isn't true. Jesus does forgive all sins, but he told us exactly how he wants it done. It's not as easy as simply praying to God for forgiveness. That the sacrament of penance was instituted by Christ can be proven in sacred scripture. In John 20, 23, we find Jesus addressing the apostles in the upper room on the evening of the first Easter Sunday. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In this special commission to the apostles, we find several interesting elements. The first is that Christ makes himself clear that what he is giving the apostles is indeed a commission mandate when he tells them that he's sending them as the Father sent him. In other words, he's passing on to them his own mission of redemption. The second important element is that he breathed on them. In all of human history, this is only the second time that God breathed on man. The first time God breathed on man was when he gave life to Adam. God is giving a new type of life to man here. He's telling the apostles that they now have his power to forgive the sins of those who are repentant and sorrowful or not to forgive the sins of those who aren't repentant and sorrowful. Anti-Catholic writer Lorraine Bettner, author of Roman Catholicism, known as the Anti-Catholic Bible, writes that auricular confession to a priest instead of God was invented by Pope Innocent III and the bishops of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. This is the most generally held position by those who claim the Church invented this sacrament of penance. Even if the church's opponents were to completely discount the scriptural references to confession, 
which they do, we should expect to find no historical evidence of the sacrament's existence prior to 1215. This isn't the case. There are many, many writings of the early Christians dating back to hundreds of years before the Fourth Lateran Council. St. Gregory the Great in the 6th century wrote in his homily on John 20.23, The apostles, therefore, have received the Holy Spirit in order to loose sinners from the bonds of their sins. God has made them partakers of his right of judgment. They are to judge in his name and in his place. The bishops are the successors of the apostles and therefore possess the same right. St. Caesareus of Arles, who lived from 470 to 542, writes, It is God's will that we confess our sins not only to him but to men. And since it's impossible for us to be free from sin, we must never fail to have recourse to the remedy of confession. In a sermon on the Last Judgment, the same saint tells us, quote, to escape damnation by making a sincere confession from the bottom of our hearts and to fulfill the penance given by the priest, end quote. St. Leo the Great, who lived from 370 to 461, writes, God, in his abundant mercy, has provided two remedies for the sins of men, that they may gain eternal life by the grace of baptism and also by the remedy of penance. Those who have violated their vows of baptism may obtain the remission of their sins by condemning themselves. The divine goodness is so decreed that the pardon of God can only be obtained by sinners through the prayers of the priests. Jesus Christ himself conferred upon the rulers of the church the power of imposing canonical penance upon sinners who confess their sins and of allowing them to receive the sacraments of Christ after they have purified their souls by a salutary satisfaction. Every Christian, therefore, must examine his conscience and cease deferring from day to day the hour of his conversion. He ought not to expect to satisfy God's justice on his deathbed. It is dangerous for a weak and ignorant man to defer his conversion to the last uncertain days of life, when he may be unable to confess and obtain priestly absolution. He ought, when he can, to merit full pardon by a satisfaction for his sin. The great Bishop St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, tells his flock not to listen to those who deny that the church has the power to forgive all sins. St. Ambrose, who lived from 340 to 397, declares that priests pardon all sins, not in their own name, but as ministers and instruments of God. Origen, who lived from 185 to 254, in his commentary on Psalm 28 writes, When you have eaten some indigestible food and your stomach is filled with an excessive quantity of humor, you will suffer until you have gotten rid of it. So in like manner, sinners who hide and retain their sins within their breasts become sick therefrom almost to death. If, however, they accuse themselves, confess their sins, and vomit forth their iniquity, they will completely drive from their souls the principal evil. Consider carefully whom you choose to hearken to your sins. Know well the character of the physician to whom you intend to relate the nature of your sickness. 
If he judges that your sickness is of such a nature that it should be revealed publicly in the church for the edification of the brethren and your own more effective cure, do not hesitate to do what he tells you. The great preponderance of evidence shows that confession wasn't a 13th century invention of the church, but that it had already been in place for centuries before the Fourth Lateran Council was convoked. Still, opponents of the church on this issue, although they can't explain these early writings, continue to have a problem reconciling John 20:23 to anything other than confession. Many claim that Jesus is merely repeating his precept that we must forgive one another. But this presents a problem. It's true that Jesus taught throughout the Gospels that we're to forgive others who sin against us, but that isn't what John 20.23 says. In this passage, Jesus speaks only to his apostles. He gave them the power to choose whether to forgive sins. Either he was contradicting himself in this passage from previous admonishments to forgive 70 times 7, or he was giving the apostles a power never given to man before. Since he'd soon be ascending to heaven and no longer personally present to forgive sins as he had during his ministry, he gave this power to his priesthood by way of the apostles. If there's an invention here... It's not the sacrament of penance, but the notion that priestly forgiveness of sins is not found in the Bible or early Christian history. The point to all this has been that if Jesus told us to do all he commanded, and if he established one church, what he referred to as my church, we have an obligation to belong to the church he established, and that church is the Catholic Church. To my Catholic listeners, never ever doubt that you're in the right place. Jesus established the Catholic Church for one purpose and one purpose alone, so that we might be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. No one's salvation is assured, though. The sad fact that the majority of you will end up in hell because you're unwilling to do everything Christ commands, and he certainly made obedience a condition of our salvation. So if you want to spend eternity in heaven, Learn everything the church teaches, accept everything the church teaches, live everything the church teaches, and make God first in your life. Just ask me if you want to learn everything that Jesus teaches through his church so you can avoid hell. After all, you can't live the things you don't know. Just listening to the Catholic boot camp segment of this show isn't enough to keep you out of hell. To my non-Catholic listeners, you need to make a choice. Considering the condition of the world these days, you need to make that decision now, today. And that decision is to become a Catholic. Look, folks, if Jesus established just one church, he expects you to belong to his church. There isn't any other way that you can possibly be saved. You can't claim ignorance at your judgment. You've been told the truth, so now you're obligated to accept and live that truth. If you're not a Catholic and want to learn how to become one, reach out to me. I'll provide you with an email course of study. I'll help you find a parish priest who's faithful to the Catholic Church to help you make your conversion easy and pleasurable. I'll stick by you every step of the way. I don't want any of you to go to hell.
When I went to receive my third degree in the Knights of Columbus, nobody had told me that we'd be quizzed on proficiency in our knowledge of the faith. I thought I might be embarrassed because, well, you know, they were knights after all. I was embarrassed, all right, embarrassed for the other 50-plus men there. With the exception of two other men, they couldn't answer the most simple catechism questions. Things like, how many sacraments are there and what are the mysteries of the rosary? During the social activities after the degree work, I listened to what the men were saying about what they'd just been through. To my amazement, they actually thought that they'd been asked very advanced catechism questions. That Knights of Columbus third degree was not an isolated situation. Sadly, at least 95% of American Catholics are wholly or almost wholly ignorant of the Catholic faith. But I'm offering you a remedy for your parishioners. Introducing the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Endorsed by Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, each of these inserts teaches a thumbnail catechism lesson. When your parishioners begin to get involved, they'll get many more benefits at a cost of only $19.95 a month to your parish. But you won't start out paying that because I want to give it to you for three months for free just to try it out. Take 11 minutes to watch a video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six Pack System Bulletin Inserts to learn more. This is a good idea for priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without giving the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. Joe Six-Pack. The Every Catholic Guy wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Daily Wire. A video that went viral shows both President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden not wearing masks as they walk into the expensive Fiola Mare restaurant in Washington, D.C. The city's mask mandate states that everyone, including fully vaccinated people, must wear masks in indoor public settings, including restaurants and bars, when not eating or drinking. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who issued the executive order, was taped in July violating her own mask mandate as well. Why, you must be delusional or something! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Daily Wire. Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastain said his company is ending its vaccine mandate for employees, noting that the order had caused divisiveness. Bastain told Fox Business, We're proving that you can work collaboratively with your people, trusting your people to make the right decisions, respecting their decisions, and not forcing them over the loss of their jobs. Wow! That's just incredible! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number 3 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. 
A group of 17 Christian missionaries in Haiti were kidnapped Saturday by a gang. The missionaries, 16 of whom are American, had been returning from a visit to an orphanage. In April, the same gang kidnapped five priests and two religious sisters, leading Catholic schools to close in protest. Send in the Calvary! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number two. Hats off to CNBC. China surprised U.S. intelligence by testing a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile in August. The missile flew through low-orbit space and circled the globe before cruising toward its target, which it missed by approximately two dozen miles. Who do you think you are? You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number one. Hats off to Variety. For generations, Superman's motto was truth, justice, and the American way. But now DC Comics announced that the superhero won't be saying America anymore. His new slogan will be truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Don't be such a butt! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. As a bit of a deviation from our ordinary Catholic boot camp, I'm turning this one over to Simon Rafe of Church Militant. For those who are premium members of Church Militant, there's a series by Simon called Case Files. Simon makes these creative videos about liturgical abuses. He dresses like a private investigator in old 1930s Bogart-type movies as he presents his research in liturgical abuse cases. Simon's Case Files series is one of my favorite features as a Church Militant Premium member. I've been known to binge on them before. I urge you to become a premium member so you can not only be entertained by Simon, but also learn some important things that you didn't know before. He has titles such as The Case of Dancing in the Isles, The Case of the Latin Switcheroo, and The Case of Turning Your Back on God. There'll be a link to sign up to Church Militant Premium Membership in my show notes. It's only 10 bucks a month, and I know most of you waste that each week on Burger King and McDonald's. So give Church Militant Premium Membership a try. In the meantime, let's listen to Simon's case file called The Case of the Girls in the Sanctuary. When he's done, you can draw your own conclusions.
you ever think you've been sold a gold brick? Somehow someone's pulled the wool over your eyes and done some kind of switcheroo. I'm not talking about if you're gonna buy a car and it's a lemon, I'm talking about the faith. You look around the church today at her liturgy and you see abuses everywhere. Communion in the hand, liturgical dances, crazy music, people dressed like they're going to the beach. And that's if they go to mass at all. What happened? How do we get here? Well, I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna open up my files and take you through some cases. Give you all the information so that you can understand not only what's going on, but how we got here, why it's wrong, and most importantly, what you can do about it. I call this one, the case of the girls in the sanctuary. We've all seen it. Women serving on the altar. Altar girls rather than altar boys. It started as an abuse and it's been consistently condemned throughout the 2000 year history of the church. Canon 44 of the Synod of Laodicea held in the 4th century tells us women may not go to the altar. In 1755, Pope Benedict XIV said, Pope Gelasius condemned the evil practice which has been introduced of women serving the priest at the celebration of mass. The abuse spread to the Greeks, and so Innocent IV wrote to the Bishop of Tusculum saying, women should not dare to serve at the altar. They should be altogether refused this ministry. We too have forbidden this practice in the same words. All right, you want something more recent? How about the 1917 Code of Canon Law? A woman may not be a minister of the mass except when no male is available and for a just cause and under the condition that she makes the responses from a distance, not under any circumstances approaching the altar. Ah, that's before Vatican II, you say. After the council, the church must have changed, right? Nope. Girls serving on the altar was actually condemned twice. First, by Pope Paul VI in 1970 when he wrote, in conformity with norms traditional in the church, women, single, married, religious, whether in churches, homes, convents, schools, or institutions for women, are barred from serving the priest at the altar. And then, 10 years later, in 1980, Saint Pope John Paul II repeated it. There are, of course, various roles that women can perform in the liturgical assembly. These include reading of the word of God and proclamations of the intentions of the prayer of the faithful. Women are not, however, permitted to act as altar servers. So, it's pretty clear the church doesn't allow and has never allowed women to serve on the altar. Now, a lot of people, feminists, badly formed priests, other people with woolly-headed ideas, don't much like that. They think it's nothing more than woman-hating chauvinism from an outdated and oppressive patriarchal institution, a bunch of old guys trying to cling on to power. I mean, after all, what's the big deal, all right? It can't be really wrong to have altar girls, right? After all, anything a boy can do, a girl can do just as well, huh? Besides, if the girls serve, they'll take a more active role in the church. Might even encourage them in a religious vacation, maybe? Surely, it'd be awful sexist not to allow women to serve in this day and age, right? Wrong. This ain't some arbitrary prohibition. There are serious pastoral and theological difficulties with women serving at the altar, and these can have a very damaging impact on the faith. Let's examine the pastoral difficulties first. Now, no one would say women don't have a role to play in the church. That's not what this is about. But the church has always recognized that there are differences between the sexes and that these differences mean each gender has distinctive roles to play in the economy of salvation. Whatever role a woman wants to play, and there are many roles she can play, and all of them are absolutely vital, she can never be a priest. 
And this doesn't mean the church doesn't allow women to be priests. Women are unable to be priests. A female priest is like a square circle, a contradiction in terms. Pope John Paul II laid this out very clearly when he wrote, Wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, a matter which pertains to the church's divine constitution itself, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the church's faithful. And before you get the idea that was Pope John Paul and he was a crusty old Polish conservative, let's remember that hip and cool Pope Francis, who everyone seems to think is up for changing anything, said, with regard to the ordination of women, the church has spoken and said, no, that door is closed. Despite this, some people have called for the Catholic Church to do the impossible and ordain a lady. Some of these individuals are simply ignorant, useful idiots who don't understand why what they are asking is impossible. But others are motivated by a Marxist and feminist ideology called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism views all inequalities as inherently evil and tries to break them down by any means necessary. The big problem with it is that it denies objective reality. Men and women are of equal value, but they're not the same. Like a dollar bill and four quarters. Same value, not the same thing. There are real differences, biological, physiological, psychological, between men and women. These mean each sex has different roles to play. And because a woman can't be a priest, letting a girl be an altar server is kind of cruel. Priests often started out as altar boys. Studies back this up. Jordan, can you bring in the Cara report? Thanks. The Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate conducted a survey of ordinands to the priesthood every year for a few years there. In it, priests are asked about their ethnicity, siblings, education, and participation in parish ministries, that kind of thing. One of the questions asked was, were you an altar server during your formative years? Thanks, Jordan. In 2010, 70% of the respondents had been servers. In 2011, it was 71. 75% in 2012 and 67% in 2013. Clearly, there's a strong correlation. Letting a girl be an altar server gives her false hope. It puts her on a path that leads logically to the priestly state. Although not all, not even most, altar boys become priests or even continue to serve on the altar, that is because they choose to step off that path. Some poor altar girl doesn't have that choice. The end goal is something she can never attain. At best, she will be disappointed. At worst, she might go off and join some crazy group who lie to her and say she's ordained. Set aside the damage this does to the church. That ain't fair to her. Some people say letting women serve on the altar encourage them to become nuns, but I don't buy it. Sure, being involved with something to do with the church might encourage them to stay engaged, but there's nothing specific about serving mass that would encourage a girl to become a nun. Nuns don't perform the sacrifice of the mass. They're not priests or anything like it. And it's not just the girls that it's unfair to, it's unfair to the boys as well. Let's, let's be honest here. Once girls become involved in something, the more the boys see it as a girly thing and they don't want to do it no more. You don't end up with equality of numbers of girls and boys on the altar. You end up with a sanctuary filled with women and the boys sitting in the pews, if they come to mass at all. In more traditional parishes where they don't allow altar girls at all, this ain't so. In parishes like this, it's usual to have a bunch of young men serving. They see it as a noble and chivalrous pursuit. In these parishes, vocations are dramatically on the rise. So, those are the pastoral concerns. Let's take a look at theology.
Like I said, being an altar boy is the first step on a path that leads to priesthood. A guy doesn't have to walk the whole path, but it's a path only a young man can walk. This is because historically, the position of altar boy corresponds to the minor order of acolyte. Service at the altar has always been associated with the clerical state. Adding women to the mix not only breaks with 2,000 years of tradition, but also makes real changes to the theology of the mass. Churches aren't built the way they're built on a whim. Architecture means something. It represents heaven and earth. The nave corresponds to the earth and the sanctuary corresponds to heaven. The sanctuary is where Christ's sacrifice is represented to the Father. It's associated with Christ and the masculine. The nave is the place where the bride of Christ, his church, is seated. It represents the feminine. This separation of the masculine and feminine reflects a proper understanding of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and more generally, between God and his creation. Everything about the Mass has a deep theological significance. For example, the movements and gestures of the altar servers, disciplined and well-coordinated, they remind us of a well-trained militia, like the legions of angels in heaven who are present at every Mass, adoring our Lord and Savior. And yeah, no matter what hallmark greeting cards might try to tell us, angels are masculine, and they are military, and they are disciplined. God and heaven are perfectly ordered, perfectly harmonious. The Mass should express this. Otherwise, we aren't offering fitting worship to Him. To be perfectly honest, there's more to being an altar server than just being a guy. You've got to be masculine, part of a well-drilled group with discipline, teamwork, and precision. Sloppy liturgical movements, well, they're almost as big a problem as having girls up there. The Mass must manifest theological truths, otherwise it might lead the faithful into error. Now, I've got a whole bunch of case files to go through about this, believe me, but this particular thing, women on the altar, this is pretty much where it starts. Because, and I know this is going to upset a whole bunch of people, and not all of them are Marxist feminist hippies or anti-Catholic proponents of liturgical revolution or women's ordination. Some of them are badly formed, but otherwise good Catholics, who don't understand the fundamental importance of the difference between the sexes to the liturgy. The reason this is the first case file I opened is because introducing the feminine into the masculine realm of the sanctuary doesn't just blur the lines between the genders, causing confusion to men and women alike, giving them false hope which could never be fulfilled. It also symbolically disturbs the distinction between Christ and his bride, the church. It disrupts the distinction between lay people and the priest, between us and Christ. And if that distinction is damaged, then our relationship, which is the means of salvation, suffers too. Like I said, this isn't going to please a lot of people, but then again, the church isn't concerned with keeping up with the latest trends or ideologies. She is only concerned with one thing, the salvation of souls and the proper worship of the one true God. And I think the conclusion is pretty clear. There are too many pastoral and theological problems caused by women serving on the altar to encourage it or even allow it. There should be an immediate and complete return to only men and boys serving mass. It's not a popular opinion, perhaps, but I think we can call this case closed.
Hey, Simon Rafe here, Chief of Staff at Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and get an honest view of all things going on inside and outside the church. We're the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilton.com today. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Mother Teresa. All of us must be saints in this world. Holiness is a duty for you and me. So let's be saints and so give glory to the Father. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. In a certain parish, a priest was trying to get his parishioners to come to church. He thought of a plan. One Sunday morning, he made this announcement. A distinguished person of the parish has died. The funeral will be held Wednesday at 9 o'clock. The whole parish was aroused since no one could figure out who the prominent person was. On the day of the funeral, the church was standing room only. When the coffin was open, the people filed past to see the remains of the distinguished person. They looked into the coffin and gasped with surprise. After the Mass, the priest said to the people, As you looked into the coffin, you saw the dead person was you. I obtained a coffin and put a mirror in it so that you could see yourself. You, my dear people, are spiritually dead, so I thought I'd bury you. It didn't take the people very long to make up their minds to go back to church. The priest wanted to show his people that they were spiritually dead because they refused to receive the sacraments. The sacraments give sanctifying grace, which is the life of the soul. The more frequently you go to confession followed by communion, the more God's life will be increased in your soul. This is the surest way to save your soul. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It. 